Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Binthia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. My name's Daniel Long, and this is uh, Rich Rollins, and he doesn't want to stand next to me. Get over here. Uh, so, so Rich uh, Rollins is a, you're a real gift to this community. He's going to be preaching this morning on joy, and I think of joy as kind of like the, the opposite of cynicism. And when I think of Rich, I think of somebody who is just, you are not cynical at all. You are somebody who is joy-filled. And um, Rich was a pastor for many years before he and his wife Lulu came here to participate in the life of grace. And I'm so grateful for that. So grateful for his voice in our church, for his voice in my life, especially as a pastor, as somebody who knows um, you know what that's like, and you've given me a lot of encouragement. Uh, so I'm grateful for him to come and to speak to us and, and Rich, you were so wise, I think. You put on a good front, at least. But, and so I just want to thank you personally, honestly, for, for giving yourself to us in this way and to speak from God's Word. So, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. That was uh, more than $5 worth, though. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 15, page 949, for those of you who are waiting for me to give you a page number in the Blue Bible. 
This is a short prayer or a doxology, depending on how you view this, as Paul is winding up his uh, discussion to the uh, church at Rome. And he says in chapter 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The ESV says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you are believing, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're in a a series on um, becoming, and we've looked at um, uh, humility, we've looked at uh, trust and hope, and this morning uh, we want to look at uh, joy, and I'm going to stay just in this passage. I don't want to move around, because I think this passage helps us understand not only the source of our joy, but the process by which we get it and the outcome of what happens in our lives when we have it. So as we begin, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the constant reminder that you are a God of hope. And we pray this morning, Father, that uh, you would come and your presence would bless us and that we might be able to uh, sink into your word and your Holy Spirit would teach us to remind us to bring us to the place where you would have us to be, that we might experience this joy and this hope that is threaded throughout the line of your scripture. We thank you, Father, for who you are. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you are our God and we are your children. Guide us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if uh, you've thought much about joy. I had really not thought much about joy until Daniel gave me this topic. Actually, I picked this topic. And when I picked the topic, he gave me a choice of all four. I thought, no-brainer. I actually discovered halfway through my study, it'd be easier to explain to you the operation of the galaxy (laughs) than to define joy in Scripture to you. Because this topic threads its way from Genesis all the way through Revelation in such a way that we understand that one of God's great programs in our life is to bring to us a sense of well-being, a sense of joy. And you see it in the Psalms, you see it in the Proverbs, you see it throughout the Word of God, this concept of joy, uh, being a part of the believer's life and relationship with the Father. I don't know where you find your source of joy. Uh, Some of us find it in our work, some of us find it in our our house, our relationships, our surroundings, uh, and none of that is necessarily wrong. I think God brings us to a place so that we, we see everything in a different perspective. But the joy I want to talk about this morning is a joy that comes directly from him to us. And it's seen clearly in this passage. This is probably a good time to define it, and I'm going to be bold. I'm going to give you a definition, and if you don't like it, Go home and write your own, because there are thousands of definitions. But we're talking this morning about Christian joy. Now, this is not to say that we never grieve. This is not to say that we never have heartbreak. This is not to say that the man who does not know God never has joy in his life. This is to say that God gives the believer, his child, 
a special joy throughout his relationship with him. And so I've been so bold as to define it this way. Christian joy is an emotion or good feeling in our soul. It's in the immaterial part of our, you can't conjure it up. I remember as a kid when I was not feeling well or I was unhappy, my mom would try to make me smile as if somehow smiling would bring on joy. And it just made me matter. <laughs> this is not something you can conjure up. This is something that God gives, and it's an emotion. It's deep within us. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches, through obedience and faith that models a winsome character of Jesus to the world around us. It's, it's out of obedience, and, and here I want to almost stop and preach another sermon because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And uh, we're told uh, in the letter to Galatia that Paul wrote that we need to walk in the Spirit. We need to, every step should be in the Spirit. He wrote to uh, the church of Ephesus and he said you need to be filled with the Spirit. It's our same word here, controlled by the Spirit. And he talks about what we look like when we're controlled. We're always giving thanks. We're always making melody in our life. And so this is a product of the Holy Spirit. And this is a, a, side, a side point. This is how it happens. And I don't like the process. God uses our, the word, our circumstances, the people in our lives to prod us. The Holy Spirit comes alongside. Isn't it interesting that God's relationship with us is never a finger in our chest? It's never confrontational. In fact, the language for the Holy Spirit in the original language is the one called alongside, the comforter. And so as we're reading a passage, he comes alongside and he says, whoa, stop here, stop here. You know, you haven't done that for a long time. And I want to say, no, no, Lord, you don't understand. Luanna is the one that has the problem. I don't have the problem. <laughs> no, no, no. He said, I'm taking care of Luanna, but I'm talking to you. And so he begins to prod me to make some changes in my life. And, and so if I'm serious about walking in the Spirit, I need to make the change. But more than likely, because I'm stubborn, I'll close the Bible and walk away from it and, and not remember it. And his first response, according to Scripture, is he grieves. He grieves for us because God the Spirit is determined in Rich Rollins to knock off all of the Rich Rollins and to reveal Jesus in my life. And so that process is not always comfortable. It's always involved change. It never happens in the comfort zone. And so as he comes to me and uses the experiences around me, he reminds me constantly of how I should be. Now, uh, I go back to the passage maybe the next day in my devotions, and I start reading on, and he says, wait a minute, we're not done with yesterday. Let's go back and look there. And over a period of time, if I keep pushing him away, I quench him. And then the Holy Spirit just stops talking to me. He says, okay, I'll, I'll let you do your thing, but there will be a time we're going to have this conversation again. And there usually is a time when something happens and I come back and we have this conversation. See, the Holy Spirit wants to fill me with his fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy. So we can't define joy without the Holy Spirit being involved, and we can't define it without obedience being involved. Because God's concerned not with what I do, but who I am. And everything that I do should arise out of who I should be. 
and so he's constantly changing me. Uh, it is a testimony to the world around us. The Christians can't be figured out by most of the people in the world because of the joy that we have in our life. It's a go figure. You, 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 you just can't define it. And if you listen to the secular world, they really struggle with the whole issue. How could we be so optimistic as a people in the midst of the storm? Well, it's interesting that uh, joy is always expressed as a continuum. It starts with that quiet sense of being okay. And it sometimes ends with happiness and jubilation, just absolute hilarity. So joy defined. It's really interesting that all of this arises out of Paul's first statement, may the God of hope. I don't know who God is to you, but if he's not the God of hope, you'll probably never experience joy. When I came out of college, I came out of college as a medical technologist and wanted to be in the area of medicine. I wanted to work in that area. I loved that area. And so I was privileged to get a job in a small laboratory in, uh, in uh, San Leandro, California. I was a uh, fat, dumb, and happy, a college graduate, a Baptist kid, raised all my life in the church. And I was going to work in a lab, I didn't know this until I got there, of, uh, of all Jews. I was the only Gentile, uh, of which they commented on in my interview. I was the first Gentile they'd ever hired for the lab. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, all of the people in the lab had been victims of the Holocaust. So our, our secretary, uh, she was seven years old, came home from school in Berlin, found a note from her mom. Her mom had taken their silver and all their money and fled to Switzerland and left uh, Ruth with her four-year-old brother to take care of you can't you can't imagine it. Um, I think the neighbors next door were Christians, and they uh, hid her and her brother in a wall for four months and then spared her out of the country. Our medical director was coming home from a lab his third year of medical school in Vienna, and an arm came out and pulled him into the into the into a, a bush and said, uh, "You need to run. The, the Gestapo has taken your whole family and taken them away." And if you go home tonight, you'll die. He never saw them again, fled to the United States, finished his medical school, and then became the director of this lab. Everybody had these stories, and they all hated God. Because the Holocaust was God's fault. And stupid me, I tried to remind them that it was Hitler's fault. <laughs> but it fell on deaf ears. I always grew up thinking the Jews were God's people. I loved them. I believe they knew the Old Testament. They were in the Bible all the time. It's amazing how naive you can be and still be a college graduate. None of them had ever read the Bible. And then the Six-Day War broke out. Six days. Day one, I, they pulled all the radio, television, everything into the lab so we could hear a blow-by-blow they were concerned about their homeland, and I kept telling them they're going to win. I just I said, I believe it. God is your God. He's not finished with Israel yet. And, and on the sixth day, they won. All of a sudden, I became the prophet of the lab. <laughs> I said, uh, they would say, uh, well, we don't understand this. I said, well, have you ever read the book of Daniel? No. 
read the book of Daniel. Then I would talk about Daniel for three months. They would come, all these questions. And as they began reading the Old Testament, all of a sudden they began to soften in their attitude about God. Now we know God's word says that there's no way you're going to find God ultimately without Jesus Christ. And so their attitude about God had to change based on knowledge, based on understanding more about him than what they believed to be true. But it's interesting, those of us who have all this knowledge sometimes still struggle with the same things. We still struggle uh, with the whole thing about who God is. I was sitting having my hair cut some years ago, and the gal that was cutting my hair uh, had become a good friend. She attended our church, and I had done the funeral for her brother who had died from a drug overdose, and she was still really grieving through that process. And uh, usually the place would be packed, and we'd have all kinds of people there, and she would inevitably get me involved in some embarrassing conversation that everyone would eavesdrop on. But that morning, no one was there except us. And she said, do you believe in hell? I said, uh, yeah. She said, do you like it? I said, no. I don't understand it. But I'm not God. I'm Rich Rollins. And she said, I, I, don't, I don't get it. If God is all-powerful, if God can control everything, why does he send anyone to hell? Why doesn't he just save everyone? That's a great question. I said, it's too profound for me. I'm just a pastor. But I said, let me, let me give you a little story. For a year and a half, she'd been telling me about this guy who lives in a park behind her house. Uh, he's in his late teens. He's gone through the process of emancipation in the state of California so he can live on his own, but he lives in a pasteboard box. He gets rained on. He sometimes doesn't have food. They've taken him to the hospital a couple of times. And she really has uh, an attachment to this kid. She really loves this kid. So she's given him clothes. She's given him blankets. She's given him food. She regularly stops by to see how he is. So I said, Barb, tonight, when you're going home, uh, you decide that you're going to offer him a place to live. And so you stop and you say, look, I'm in a four-bedroom home. We're only using one bedroom. I've got three bedrooms that are vacant. I really want to put you up in the bedroom. I want to help you get on your feet. I'll do whatever it takes to make you successful. Would you take me up on my offer? And he says, uh, no. I said, would you drag him to your car and make him go to the bedroom? She said, no. I said, why not? You love him. You care for him. She said, well, it just wouldn't be right. I said, why are you not willing to do that you will not let God have the same position? See, God's not a bully. He doesn't drag us kicking and screaming through the program. And so we have to understand that as we make our adjustments, that we have to see God in a clear fashion. Because he says the process here of finding joy is through believing. Many of the translators insert, as I read the NIV, trusting in him. They're tied inseparably together. How much do you really believe God for? Your finances? See, for years, I believe God provided salvation for me. I believe he provided uh, good friends and a job and everything. I wasn't too sure I wanted him messing with my finances. It wasn't until I realized that every single thing I have is, is the result of his blessing in my life. 
my job, my friends, my money, everything. Some years ago, I met uh, Harry Lee. Uh, he was born in China, in Shanghai, and um, was pastoring a church at the end of the Second World War in Shanghai. And when Mao took over China, they took him and arrested him, disbanded the church, took him north and put him in prison for 20 years. So for 20 years, he languished in a prison farm, in a cell. Finally, they had, I don't know what happened in the country, but they had some kind of a reconsideration of all this, and they freed him. He went back down to Shanghai and for the next few years resumed his pastorate in the town, began ministering to people, and they came and arrested him again. This time they put him in a jail cell that was smaller than he is tall. And he spent 10 years in this cell. 10 years. Finally, they let him out. And uh, the irony of this story is when they let him out, a guard told him to go to a warehouse in Shanghai, to a particular place in the warehouse, and he would find his belongings there. 40 years And he went there and found his Bible, all of his notes, all of his pictures from his family wrapped up in a string in that warehouse. So I met him. him, I was at a college at that time, and we had him speak. And I asked him, I said, how could you endure all of that, all of those years? He said, because I knew God. He said, when I was a young man and got saved, I started memorizing Scripture. And he said, I think I've got about a quarter of the Bible memorized. And he said, there wasn't a day of captivity that I didn't reflect upon what I knew about the Word of God. And as a result, the God who wrote that Word. And he said it made all the difference in my life. He had no bitterness. Sure, he regretted all of what had happened. He still was trying to figure out the purpose. The church withered and died. But he knew that personally, God had protected him all this time. See, the solution to our finding joy is first finding God. First having a high, a right relationship and a right understanding uh, about God. I, last time I spoke, uh, I gave you this verse in second, uh, Peter. It says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through your knowledge of the Lord and God the Father. And the word knowledge there is intimate knowledge. It's used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to talk about intimate intimacy between a man and a woman. It would be rendered this way, and Adam knew Eve, and they bore Abel. And so Peter is telling us that we can have grace and, and peace in abundance if we know God in a personal way. And so as we consider the God of hope, we have to become acquainted with him so that he truly becomes, in our life, the God of hope. And Paul goes on to say that as we believe, he fills us with joy. Now, there's a relationship there. The more we believe and the more we trust, I I assume, the more complete this joy is in our relationship with him. So I have a little bit of heresy here. I have some things that I've tried to do in my own life when I have found that I don't have joy that I think we all as believers need to be doing. Now, I don't have four and a half hours, so I can't go through all of them, but just give you a list. Let me just give you a list. 
The first is we need to remove the distractions in our life. Do you know why I like the book of Hebrews? The book of Hebrews is written to uh, Jewish Christians who did this. They were Jews and involved in Judaism before they got saved. And when they got saved, they didn't exchange Judaism for Christianity. They just added Christianity. So they were still doing all the Jewish things. And the writer of Hebrews says it kept them from growing. It kept them from maturing. I think the American Christian is doing all the American things and has added the church as an add-on. And and we we tend to be extremely busy. There's a statement that Luana has used on me for years, and I hate it. Because I'm a busy person. I love to be busy. And I would come home, and I would start complaining about my busyness, and she would say... Someone told me that God has given you all the time you need to accomplish his will. I hate that thought. (laughs) Because usually my busyness is my problem. It's not something that God gave me. And I think as the American church, we're so busy, we don't have time to really establish a relationship with God the Father. The second thing I think we have to do is we have to join the divine cooperative. Join the divine cooperative. We have a lot of silly thinking about God's will. God has a sovereign will. And in that sovereign will, he's determined how the outcome is going to be, how everything is going to come about. He hasn't shared all of his sovereign will with us. Uh, And the formula is God plus nothing equals his will. There's nothing I can do to change his sovereign will. No amount of prayer, no amount of anything can change his sovereign will. But the word that's used for a word, for a will in the New Testament is not that word. It's his desirous will. In the Greek language, it's thelomai. God has a desirous will for us, and in that will, we can change or make or break it. We're in a divine cooperative. I believe it's God's will that this church succeed. But it won't happen unless we sign up. I believe it's God's will that my marriage thrive. It won't happen unless Luann and I sign up. And and so many times we think this way, it's God's problem. I just just let God do it. I had a friend of mine looking for a job, and I would call him. He he was fired after 30 years, and I just wanted to encourage him. So I called him, and I said, so, you know, how's it going? I'm praying for you. And he's going fine, you know. Call him a week later, same thing. Call him two weeks later, and he said, you know, I'm getting a little discouraged. I don't have any offers. I, don't. I said, well, what are you doing? He's praying. I said, oh, my friend, you can't steer a boat that's not moving. You need to be out looking for a job. You need to be out doing something, putting your apps in so that God can bless some activity. See, that's the divine cooperative, and sometimes we just leave it all up to God. We just we pray about it and let God take care of it. And most of the time, he won't. I can pray all day long that God would deliver me to my car in the parking lot. It won't happen, I guarantee, until I walk out and get in my car. So we all need to join the divine cooperative. We need to be involved in the process. Uh, we also need to take the medicine. We had a whole series on this some time ago. Uh, we called it the disciplines of the Christian life. But taking the medicine is like this. I have high blood pressure. Now, for the first couple of years, I was in deep denial. 
And this is how bad it was. I'm in a drugstore, and I put my arm in that cuff, take a blood pressure, and it's off the chart. My first response to Luana was, machine's broken. If they're going to have this machine out here, they should make sure that it works well, right? So I went by, uh, Luana's never nagged me. She just reminded me that I should have it done again. So I went back, and I had it done again, and same result. They haven't fixed the machine. Third week, I go in there, it's normal. See, they fixed the machine. I did it two more times, it's still, it's, now it's abnormal again. So I go to the doctor. They take my blood pressure uh, with one of those electronic things, and it's high. So I get into the office, and I said, Joseph, I said, your machine out there is broken. Well, he says, let's take it the old-fashioned way. So he wraps that thing around and takes his stethoscope, and he said, you know what? Your blood pressure is out of control. And, and so I said, uh, are you sure that thing's working right? So they give me blood pressure medicine. So I take blood pressure medicine. My blood pressure goes down. It takes two or three weeks for it to get down. Um, and after a while, I feel pretty good, and I think I don't need the medicine anymore because my blood pressure is normal. Why is it normal? So I stopped taking the medicine. And uh, first week, my blood pressure is still normal, and so I'm saying to Luanne, you see, I don't need that medicine. Second week, it's starting to creep up a little bit. By the third week, it's out of control again. So all of a sudden, college grad, <laughs> I decide I need the medicine. So I take the medicine. You know what happens? Nothing. It takes weeks for the blood pressure to come back down. For the believer, there is a medicine. It is time in the Word, time in prayer, time in fellowship, time in service. And when we don't take the medicine and bad things happen, things we can't explain, it's like we have to reintroduce ourselves to the Lord. It's like our prayers don't go past the ceiling because it takes time for us to get back engaged in taking the medicine. So we as a people need to take the medicine. It needs to be a serious thing. Now, I don't I'm not suggesting every morning you get up at 4 o'clock and you read the Word for an hour and study it in the original text. I'm just saying you should be regularly in the Word. Regular is not once every four months. We should be reading the Word regularly. And we should be in prayer regularly. When I was up at the college, we kept a prayer list of how God answered our prayers. And it was exciting to see how literal God's answers to our prayers were. And we as a family learn to exist on God's provision in our life. It's a worthwhile exercise. Uh, the last thing that we need to do is begin building a relationship. We need to begin to discover who that God is. As we're in the Word and in prayer and in fellowship with one another, all of a sudden God begins to show up in a fresh new way. And we begin to experience that joy that just is beyond any explanation. So the process of Finding that joy is being involved in a relationship so that truly God is the God of hope in our life. And then Paul even gives us the outcome. And it's interesting here, this process is not really bringing us to joy and peace. That's not the ultimate outcome. Those are just precursors for a greater outcome. And notice what he says. He says, so that you may overflow with hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. As the process begins to work on me, as I begin to be filled with this joy and peace, all of a sudden an optimism just floods over my soul. And I begin to see the world around me from God's perspective, and it's a, it's a view of hope. It's a view of great hope. It's, a, it's amazing how that, how that works. And it, it's also a great testimony. Listen to what uh, Peter wrote. He says, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. See, a witness to the community is not, um, not a message. It's a person. I earn the right to have the message when you see authenticity in my Christianity and in my daily life. And as I begin to show that authenticity, you begin to wonder, what is going on? And then I need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within me. Now, not all of us are going to go through crises. We'll all experience one or two, but some people go through a whole uh, myriad of crises. And those who are the sons and daughters of the, of the Lord, they do it in such a way that uh, uh, is beyond human understanding. I thought it would be good to end with uh, this uh, great uh, hymn. If you grew up in the church, you know the hymn. The hymn is, It Is Well With My Soul. You may not know the story. It's the story of Horatio Spatford. He was a, a wealthy man in the uh, mid-1800s, lived in Chicago, was an attorney, and uh, had purchased a lot of property in Chicago. In 1873, at the beginning of the year, his son died of scarlet fever, and the family was so grief-stricken that they decided they would take a trip to England. He was a good friend of D.L. Moody, so they wanted to go to England and and kind of get a fresh start for a short time there. And while they were thinking that, the Chicago fire occurred and wiped his wealth out. Everything he owned burned to the ground. And, and, and so he sent his family immediately over. Just before they reached the shores of England, maybe about 30 miles, the ship that held his four daughters and his wife uh, ran into another ship, and it sank within minutes. And he lost four daughters, age 11, 9, 5, and 2. And his wife uh, telegraphed back, um, I alone live. So he chartered uh, uh, another boat to go over and to meet his wife in England. And when he got to this spot where this uh, great tragedy occurred, he pinned these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My prayer for all of us today is that may the God of hope fill us with joy and peace as we trust in him so that the Holy Spirit in his great, in his great power can fill us with hope. It makes us a distinct people. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that we are a people of hope and that you are the source of that hope. We pray that you'll guide us today, that we might continue to be your children that would please you in every way. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.